Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. I've determined, if God allows, to spend some time on Sunday evenings when I'm preaching to go through a series on the letters of Christ to the seven churches. Certainly not my attempt or intention to rehash much of what we've established in these many weeks in our Sunday school class, but because throughout my own personal study of Revelation, I kept wishing that I could concentrate on these individual letters to the churches and several other passages in Revelation that I would like to have preached, and also because for many months now I've been looking for an opportunity to deal with the doctrine of the church and teach again this congregation what it is to be the church of Jesus Christ, what the church government is about, what church discipline is, the officers of the church, and all those things which many of you have never heard taught uh, formally, and which many others have heard in the past but need to have renewed. Further, because it was the primary emphasis of my preparations for the trip to Watertown, in trying to uncover for them some of the doctrines and issues of the church, I thought this might be a good beginning point of establishing at least some groundwork in our thinking for the potential and possible series that may follow on the doctrine of the church, not to mention the high and wonderful value of sermonic material to be found in this portion of God's Word. So it's my purpose to lead you through a study of Christ's letters to the churches. And you'll notice in the weeks and months to come that there will be some Sunday nights in which I'll be preaching and some Sunday nights in which I'll not. So it will not be a series that Sunday by Sunday is back to back. But as I am in the pulpit, the Lord willing, I'll be dealing with these as time allows. So you'll be praying for these and be reading and trying to understand and discern the issues of these portions of Scripture regarding the Lord Jesus Christ's direct comments and directives to the seven churches in Asia during the first century. Tonight, then, before we enter into a study of the individual churches and the individual letters sent to those individual churches, I want to lay before you the significance of these letters being sent to the churches by Jesus Christ through the Apostle John. The significance of these letters from Christ to the churches. And before we do it, let's read from Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 11 and reading through the end of the chapter. You remember, if you've been in the Sunday school class, the study of Revelation in the first several verses as he introduces the book and shows the glory of Christ in his uh, trifold official capacity as God's Redeemer. And then in verse 9, John is stating his own companionship and compatriotship with the people to whom he writes in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience which are in Jesus thus identifying himself with those churches and with all the people of God throughout this age who are in the Lord Jesus and therefore participate in the patient endurance 
of the saints of God who are undergoing tribulation and persecution. And then in verse 11, having said that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he says he heard behind him a great voice saying, as a voice of a trumpet, verse 11, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamum and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, or pedestal lamps. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breasts with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace. And his voice as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth proceeded a sharp, two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you saw, and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Now again, let's ask the Lord to help us as we seek to unfold some of the crucial truths of this section of his word. O oh Lord, we come to preach your word. We gather to hear your word. And we desire, O oh God, that you would speak them to us. Give us your spirit. Give unction to the speaker. Give liberty of speech. And draw our hearts together around your word. And draw near to your people. And magnify your great name. In the ministry of the truth, for Christ's sake we pray. Amen. The real kingdom of Jesus Christ is not of this world. In one sense, it is an invisible kingdom. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, the Lord said. It is within you. 
More often than not, the church of Jesus Christ is bound in the hovels of poverty rather than in the halls of power. She is not immune to earthly calamity. She is acquainted with her own doubts regarding her standing because of her knowledge of her own sin and remaining corruption. No mortal eye can see her for who she is. The scriptures say in 1 John, The world knows us not because it knew him not. The kingdom of God, we read in the scriptures, is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. But the church is here. The kingdom of God is here. Set apart from all other earthly societies by her high claims, by her spiritual teachings, by her elevated morality, by her power over human hearts. The church is here. Though they don't know us, though she does not appear as the kingdom which men would expect to find, she is nonetheless here. And though in one sense she is invisible, there is a visibility to her. And the visible church does represent the invisible kingdom of Christ. The visible church is instituted by God himself in the earth. The invisible church is nowhere seen except as it has expression in the visible church. So, so, the king, so even though the kingdom of Christ is invisible... It never appears as invisible, but always it is discerned by that which represents it in the visible church. So God has instituted not just a nebulous nothing of an invisible kingdom. Though it is a kingdom not of this world, and though the world does not recognize it as the kingdom of God, and does not do honor to it, and is not interested in coming into it, it nevertheless appears in this world visibly in the form of the church represented by the several churches that are in the world. However, if the visible church is to be the representative of the invisible, pure kingdom of God, if she is to be entitled to the nomenclature, the true church, she must actually possess those things which are indicative of the invisible kingdom of Christ in order to be so qualified. To be called the representative of the kingdom of God on earth, the church must have within itself the qualities of the kingdom of God in heaven. Her design must be according to the pattern laid out by her architect, which is God. She has a builder and an architect, and his name is God. He's drawn up the blueprints for the church. He has a purpose for the church. He has put her in the world to accomplish that purpose. In order for her to be qualified to be called the true church of Jesus Christ, she must occupy that position and have that design and carry out that purpose which her architect has intended and written for her to occupy and possess and to carry out. Not only will, should her design, however, be according to the pattern shown by the Lord in the tabernacle made not with hands, but her character must exemplify his name and the name that she bears, the church of Jesus Christ. Her character 
must express something of the true character of the kingdom of God and the God whose kingdom she is. Now, she may be overvalued in the world, far out of proportion to her real condition. She has inconsistencies. She is filled with corruptions, even as we sang in the hymn. She has false sons in her pale, and she has sins among her. And she is known to have schisms throughout the 2,000 years of her history. She undergoes problems which she herself cannot explain. Great rendings asunder. Great problems from without and within. And nowhere in the world does she show herself as ideal. There's always something wrong in every church. In the best of churches, there are wolves among the sheep. In the best of churches... Namely, Ephesus in the first century, even among the elders of an apostolic church with apostles overseeing them, there were men who did not care for the flock of God. Dear brethren, the church has problems. She's inconsistent. She has much corruption. However, sometimes people overvalue her in spite of what they see in her and they identify her absolutely with the kingdom of God in heaven. The Roman Catholic Church is a good example. They have actually identified the church on earth as being the kingdom of God in its purity and perfection. And throughout history, there's been this smugness about her, about Rome, that has presumed its position far beyond what God ever intended the church to assume in this world. But on the other hand, the church may be undervalued, far beneath what she ought to know and experience in this world, Exactly because of these problems which are seen to be in her. Not only do some men overvalue her and make her more than God ever intended for her to be. Many people undervalue her and give her no credit at all because they see her inconsistencies. Now I trust that in our congregation God has dealt with each of us in such a way that we know our own faults and weaknesses enough that we will not lose heart when we notice the church has faults and weaknesses. I trust that you understand that if you're a sinner, that is the problem the church has. That it's not the church in some sort of nebulous organizational identity out there that you sit back as a member and evaluate and say, Oh my, what's happening to it? What's happening to her? What's happening to the church? You can't ask that question honorably without looking into the mirror and saying, what's happening to me? And if you're not asking it that way, you're going to be led down a very difficult path by the devil into much distress and discouragement and maybe even into apostasy. Well, the Lord, in order to prevent us from either of these errors of overvaluing the church or undervaluing her in our judgment. He, the head of the church, has provided us with clear definition of the true church in the world in these epistles in the book of Revelation. Now, the Lord has made it clear what the true church is. And it's interesting how he's done it. In this section of scripture, which we're going to study, the Lord has shown us the definition of a true church by two means. And those means are these. First of all, he uses symbols. And second, he gives us examples. There are symbols for the church in the passage which we read. 
And then in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven examples of the visible church in the world to give us a good picture of what the church of Jesus Christ really looks like and really is in the world. In fact, the subject of the whole book of Revelation is to be the church. This is seen in chapter 1, verse 11. Look at it. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Why? Why send it to the churches? Because they're the ones who need to know what you're writing. It's written for them. They are the concern. It is for them that it's being given. They need to hear it. They need to read it. They're the ones about whom the whole book is written. It is the church that's going to experience what's being de declared in this book. And it's the church that needs to be taught why it's experiencing this and what the ultimate outcome is of this very difficult and tragic experience. So what you see, put it in a book and send it to the churches. And then in verses 19 and 20, again we see that the church is the subject of the book of Revelation. Write, therefore, the things which you saw, and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. Why write them? In what context write them? Because there's a symbol here. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are seven churches. What are you writing? What are you writing about? To whom are you writing? For whose sake are you writing? What's all this here for? It's here embodied in the essence of what these symbols represent. Jesus Christ having these seven stars in his right hand and walking in the midst of these lampstands provides the very backdrop and the substance of the comfort and the help and the direction that the church of Jesus Christ throughout her centuries needs to have and needs to hold to to get her through what she's going to go through. These symbols are a mystery that need to be revealed. The whole goal is to set forth the awesome picture of Christ that's seen in the symbols of chapter 1, verses 11 through 18, along with the mysterious symbols of the church in chapter 1, 19 through 20. In order to show Christ, which we see in verses 11 through 18 in symbolic form, and the church, which we see in verses 19 and 20 in symbolic form, in their relationship one to another. What you're writing down, John, is to show the relationship between Christ and his church. And you who went with us through the study of Revelation understand the theme of the book. If we may state the theme, the triumph of Christ and his church over Satan and his hosts. So write these things to, to the church. That they may know Christ is with them. And in seeing that wonderful relationship that they have with their Lord, they may be able to endure what lies ahead of them and carry out the purpose for which they were built and put together. Now there are two symbols describing the church in this passage. The first symbol, the seven golden lampstands. Verses 12 and 13 
and verse 20. Verses 12, he says, I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man. And then in verse 20 again, the seven golden lampstands are seven churches. The second symbol are the seven stars. And that's seen in verse 16 when it says, He had in his right hand seven stars. And then in verse 20, he explains what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Literally, these are the messengers of Christ in the churches. Now, what does all that mean? What are all these symbols about? Why are they given? What is the significance of Christ sending letters and this book to these seven churches? Well, let's look at the first symbol. The lampstands, the golden lampstands, the seven golden lampstands. The lampstand is indicative and picturesque and symbolic of the mission of the church. It is the mission of the church to be a light bearer in a dark world. God has called his people, as we've read in Philippians chapter 2, that they be a light shining in a dark and a crooked and perverse generation, holding forth the word of life, the purpose for the church in the world. And it ever has been the purpose of the gathered people of God to be a light, to lighten the nations. She is a light bearer. She's not the originator of the light. She's the holder of it. She's the preser preserver of it. She's the disseminator of the light. She is to hold fast the light which has been entrusted to her. She is to hold forth the light that has been entrusted to her. Hold it fast and hold it forth. Is not that the task of the church? The pillar and ground of the truth. Not only to hold it together and guard it. But to proclaim it and expand it in the earth. She's to be a light bearer. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the mission of the church. The sole purpose and aim of all the activities of the church of Jesus Christ is to shed the light of Jesus Christ in this world to this world. Unless she does it, there will be no light. If you put your light under a bushel, men won't see it. If the salt loses its saltiness, how will the earth be salted? How strategic a position the church of Jesus Christ holds in the world. Without her, there will be no light. You, start, you might say, well, wait, wait a minute, no, no, no. The Lord is the light. And he can do without the church. He has chosen not to do without the church. He has purposed not to shine his light on the world apart from the church. He has not promised to sustain any other organization in the world by which his light will be seen. His guarantee is not placed on any other religious movement, even if it be in his name. He has promised only to build 
his church against which and which alone the gates of hell will not prevail. The expression of the whole life of the church is to carry out this purpose, this mission as a light bearer. She is a lampstand. And there are two aspects of this life of the church which are critical and probably sum up the whole duty of the church in being a light bearer. Those two aspects are worship and government. In her worship, which includes the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, she is to exhibit a holy life. The people who gather in her pale are to lift up holy hands in their prayers. They are to bring sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They are to be a holy people for their God is holy. In her ordinances, she is to hold forth the pictures of the, of the rec, uh, uh, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. She has no right to exhibit any ordinances in any way other than to convey the truth which her Lord has indicated they should convey. She may not attach to them anything or any meaning other than what the Lord attaches to them. It is her task to shed forth His light, His mind, His truth in her worship through holy living, through ordinances, and through the message which she preaches. Obviously, if she preaches the wrong message, she will not shed the right light. If she does not practice what she preaches, she will not be able to convince men that this is the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. Therefore, how can she guard the message and how can she guard that it be lived by her members? And that leads us to the consideration of the second factor of the church's life, government. She has to guard the truth from the errors of thought and word and from the errors of practice. And therefore, she is established by Jesus Christ with a certain government. And that government must be executed and exercised with such vehemence and with such rigid adherence to the Scriptures that she will not knowingly tolerate one deviation from truth preached or from truth practiced. Even her deacons are to bear witness to the world in their temporal concerns of the unity and the love of a church and its benevolence and taking care of the matters of order. Everything the church does and its officers is to convey truth and light in the context of peace and unity. So that when men look at us, they see nothing that makes them say, this isn't worthy of Christ. This isn't the way Christ would order his affairs. You see, we're not saying that the church is not going to err. We're not saying she's not going to have some dust in the floor and on the TV and in the window. But when she sees it, she dusts it off. The difference between a true church and a false church is that when the true church sees the dirt, she deals with it. When some of you are accused someday as of being a member of a church that excommunicates members, and they say, see, you're no different from all the rest. You've got bad people in your church too. You may use that very thing to them and say, no, that's the very point at which we do differ. 
We don't tolerate false doctrine and practice. That's where there is a difference. We do love the truth and readily admit that we're not perfect in it. But we seek to, do, to guard that truth and to proclaim that truth. It does not become an embarrassment for the church to discipline itself. It becomes a glory to the church. If there's embarrassment, it's in the church that doesn't guard itself and its truth and its pledge and its mission. So the lampstands represent the church in its mission to be a light bearer. And that's going to be its mission forever. That's her purpose forever. Her purity then must be maintained and preserved if she's going to be able to disseminate accurately the light of Jesus Christ. And she can't get it muddled in her thinking that, well, somehow she can tolerate error in her practice or her preaching and still get the mission work of Christ accomplished. See, the end result of doing evangelism or missions without guarding the truth at home is that eventually the very evangelism and missions that you did will produce the same errors that you tolerated at home. And then they'll come back to haunt you a generation later when rising up out of the preaching of those missionaries are churches that are in utter chaos throughout the world and not, do not have the foggiest idea about gospel truth. If you think you can compromise a bit of truth in order to win a few souls where otherwise you wouldn't have gotten to preach because they wouldn't tolerate the true message, what you'll end up with is that non-truth message embodied in the people you produce. And they'll later come back just like the pigs do with the pearl cast before them. Having trampled it underfoot, they'll turn and rend you also. The church must guard the purity of its doctrine and its practice in order to be the lampstand which Christ intended her to be. But the second symbol that is employed in Revelation chapter 1 is the symbol of the stars which are possessed in the right hand of the head of the church. Now the stars represent Christ's authority. They are the messengers of the churches. You see, not only is the church on a mission, she also is a kingdom. She has the authority of the king exercised in her by means of visible representatives acting on his orders. He has his lieutenants, his governors, if you will. And these stars, which are in his right hand, picture his authority, his government, his rights exercised in the church by means of human beings that he places there to follow his orders. They're in his hand for protection. They're in his hand for chastening. He not only has them in his hand so that he knows their deeds and is able to correct them if they get out of line. He has them in his hand so the world can't harm them while they do his will. They are his messengers. They are to execute his divine message and will. He alone has the authority. He alone has the right to rule. They are to execute his message and they are to guard his message. But it is his message there to preach. It is his message there to guard. Only his representatives bear it. 
but they must bear it lawfully. They must do it according to his rule. If they don't preach his truth, he is not bound to bless them. They're in his hands for judgment. If they do preach his truth, don't you touch the Lord's anointed. They're in his hands to be protected. And he'll defend them because he's defending himself. So the lampstand represents the light emitted by the churches. The stars represent the, represent the light given to the churches. Do you see that? The lampstand is a symbol that pictures the light that emanates from the church. The stars are a picture which symbolize the light given to the church. You see the stars that in a sense share the rule of the night with the moon. And there are many passages in the Old Testament that look at the stars as ruling lights and hosts of heaven. The stars give light and they shed light and they symbolize here the light that is given to the church that then she may emit to the world. Now notice another interesting thing in verse 16 of chapter 1. When it says that the Lord holds the stars in his right hand. Then it says immediately that out of his mouth proceeds the sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. One commentator says that this is a striking picture of these elements in congruence one with the other. He has the stars in his hand. He has the messengers of the churches in his hands. And then in context with that, out of his mouth proceeds this sword, this broad sword, this war sword, this sword by which he slays the enemy and the wicked. We see it later in chapter 19 when out of his mouth he destroys the beasts and his kingdom. The Lord Jesus with the messengers in his hand, the message in his mouth, and then his countenance as the sun shining in his strength, his life-giving countenance over the church which he, in which midst he walks, the messengers of whom are in his right hand, and his favor and his love and his grace smiles upon her, and his glory dwells in her midst. As his messengers carry his word from his mouth to the people to whom they're sent. And his church bears his light to the ages. And the Lord smiles upon her. And they have his glory following them through the wilderness. And if you touch them, you've touched the apple of his eye. And he's bound to vindicate their integrity and defend them even at the cost of your own health. His authority is enforced by His Word and it's radiated to His people in grace. A beautiful picture of symbol as the Lord holds these stars in His right hand, walks in the midst of the churches and emits from His own mouth His infallible Word and from His beautiful face the glory of righteousness for the good of His people and for the destruction of His enemies. The worship of the church may be flawed. Its government may be poorly administered. Its mission support system may be poorly conceived and carried out. But if it holds forth the light of Christ, if it submits to the authority of Christ, proclaiming his word, exemplifying his light, as long as its authority is all from Christ and not from men, then it is a true church. 
Do you hear what I said? Listen again. Its worship may be flawed. Its government may be poorly administered. Its mission support system may be poorly conceived and carried out. But if with all those errors it holds forth the light of Christ, and if it submits to the authority of Christ by preaching His Word and exemplifying His character, then it's a true church. You hear what we're saying? The Lord is in her midst. Why am I telling you this? Because the temptation will be, as we undergo thorough reformation, to see other churches who have a few I's not dotted and a few T's not crossed and maybe some more serious problems, and we may overlook the essence of the matter and miss the fact that they do still possess the character of Christ and preach the message of Christ, even though with some problems and even though in their organizations and in their carrying it out in the world, they've got some real messes on their hands. We have to remember what the true church is in the world, and that's why the Lord wrote these letters. Read about the seven churches in Asia Minor and see what picture you get. You tell me they had all their act together. You tell me they didn't have any problems. Study the churches to whom the epistles were written in the, in the book of in the New Testament. You tell me those epistles were written to churches that had no difficulties, problems, and didn't need correcting. These were apostolic churches. These were churches with direct revelation before them. These were churches with extraordinary gifts. These were churches that had been born out of the real, the real fabric of Christ's presence Himself. In the day in which the Holy Spirit came in person on the church. And yet they needed epistles from apostles to straighten out all kinds of problems. Be careful before you kick a church out of the kingdom of God because it doesn't do everything the way you do it. Now, you understand that I say that without retracting any of the things that we've preached in this pulpit about the responsibility of the church to guard its worship, to be careful in the way it conducts its evangelism and missions, and to watch the way it does its organization and every other thing. Just because God has been pleased to use bad methods does not mean that once you find that they're bad, you're to continue to use them presumptuously. Just because God has saved people under Arminian preaching does not mean that therefore it doesn't make any difference what kind of preaching you do. It does make a difference. God's mercy has saved people in this room without hardly the help of any human instrument. Does that mean, therefore, that you and I don't need to be human instruments in the evangelism enterprise of the church because God will save them anyway? I don't believe that's the reason he did it. He didn't save you so you could look at the way he saved you and use that as an excuse for doing nothing. He saved you so that the next generation would not be devoid of the witness which you missed. He saved you so that your children will not live 20 years the way you've lived without much of a testimony of the word of God in purity at all in this land. There's a reason for God building this church here. It's so that our children will have one to attend without having to build it. That's at least one reason. Make sure that you don't kick people out of the kingdom of God because they came into it in a way a bit different from the way you did. The Lord is in the midst of the church which emanates His light truly, even if it does it imperfectly. But there are two items which will underscore the significance of Christ's letters to the churches 
that we'll discover in this passage. And these two items are these. First, the the relevance to us of these letters gives us something of the significance of them. And second, their comfort for us gives us something of the significance of his writing them to the churches. Now, why would the Lord take the trouble to address these seven churches in Asia Minor when the next 16 or 17 chapters are going to be occupied with matters that have nothing whatsoever to do with those seven churches? Or, indeed, have nothing to do with most churches that existed throughout the last 2,000 years until a few churches that may live just at the end of time. Why would he do it? Well, he didn't. He didn't write these letters to seven churches that were not alive. And he didn't write these letters just to churches that are going to exist later at the last point of history. He wrote these letters to seven churches that represent in themselves the manifold imperfections and varieties of the visible church for good to every visible church in all ages and nations. I'm going to say that again. He wrote these letters to seven churches. And the seven is significant. It's the number for fullness and completion and perfection. They represent the whole church of Jesus Christ. Seven churches. Just like the sevenfold spirit. The seven spirits of God in Revelation. Represent the full ministry of the Holy Spirit in the earth. The seven churches represent Christ's true church in the world in all of her manifold imperfections and varieties. But the visible church represented by these seven. And he wrote them to these seven visible churches representative of all the churches for the good of all the churches in every age and nation. In these letters and in these churches, are all the evils represented that afterwards grew to such mighty proportions and brought such dire and fearful judgment in the earth and in the church. The church is here depicted as she actually was during the close of the apostolic era, fully equipped for the long career of conflict that lay in front of her. These seven churches are the picture of Christ's church in the world when the apostolic era was coming to a close. And that those seven churches are representative of the fullness of Christ's church in the world, fully prepared for the long career of conflict that lay in front of her. They're relevant to us because they represent what we are. What you find here, you'll find here. What you find in the book to these seven churches, you'll find in Albany, in this church. To some degree, you'll see the same principles borne out in the life of our church and our needs. Now, their relevance to us is seen specifically in the fact that each letter has a common conclusion. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 2, concluding the epistle to the Ephesians. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then again, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, verse 13, 
and verse 22, the same formula at the conclusion of each letter. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You see the significance of that statement? The same formula of conclusion to every church? In the first place, we are told that the Scriptures are spoken by God the Spirit. Let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You remember 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? All Scripture is breathed of God. And the play on the words there, God's breath, God's holy pneuma, God's Spirit. God breathes His Word by His Spirit. It's God's mouth speaking to the ears of man. Let him that hears. And hear what the Spirit says. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we are told no scripture is left open to any individual interpretation. You don't get the right to interpret it every man for himself. And see, that's an area in which the priesthood of believers and that doctrine has been perverted in our day. The priesthood of the believers is appealed to by, as saying that every believer is equally capable and able to interpret the scriptures for himself. And if your church has 51 believers that interpret this text this way and 49 that interpret it this way, the only way to resolve the issue is have a majority vote and 51 win and 49 lose. But really the 51 when they win don't have any right to expect the 49 to, to buck up because every man is a judge in his own eyes and can interpret the scripture in the way he pleases because he's a priest of God. That's the way that's been applied. Now, there's a danger on the other end of the spectrum of having authoritarian interpretation of the Scripture in the hands of a few men, as Rome has experienced, saying that you do not have the capacity to read your own Bible and interpret it, and therefore let us interpret it. We'll leave it in Latin. You don't need to understand it anyway. We'll tell you what it means. You're not capable. That's Rome until the last 20 or so years or 30 years. However, in reaction to that, the tendency has gone to the other direction in an individualistic and rebellious culture in which we don't let anybody tell us anything. And some preachers today are actually preaching in public pulpits that no man has a right to tell you anything. You have an anointing. As long as you've got the Spirit in your Bible, you get to decide what the truth is. and You don't have to submit to any man whom God presumably put over you. That's been stated among Reformed Baptist gatherings in recent days. And it's not true. Now, what is the truth? Well, no scripture is given for any private interpretation, but according to 2 Peter 1, holy men of old spoke as they were moved along or born along by the Holy Ghost. In other words, there's only one interpretation. It's God's. And whatever you do in interpreting it, you are bound to interpret it the way God meant it when God spoke it. And if you miss it, your priesthood is null and void about that. You've got to get it right. You're under the authority of God. It's not left open to opinion. God has spoken. That settles it. 
That's the doctrine of the scripture. It's spoken by the Spirit of God. Let him that has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Well, in the second place then, if the scriptures are spoken by God the Spirit, notice again the relevance of this to us. He is addressing all the churches. Let him that has ears hear what the Spirit is saying, not to any one of these churches, but to all the churches. And in each church, the command is, each church hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. That's not insignificant. It's not, let him in Ephesus hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in Ephesus. It's let him in Ephesus hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. In other words, what the Spirit is saying to these seven churches is to be heeded by everyone that's hearing. Because what he's saying to all seven churches applies to all the churches. There is an application to be made to the whole church of Jesus Christ. You see, we're talking about the relevance of these letters to us. You're not able to say, well, he he meant that to the Ephesian church. Or that's to the Laodicean church. That's not our problem. Another problem in church history and in theology is that some have interpreted this passage and section of Scripture to be a picture of the different epochs of the history of the church in the last 2,000 years. In other words, there's the Ephesian age. There's the Smyrna age. There's the Philadelphian age. And then finally the last one is the Laodicean age. And most in our time have said we're living in the Laodicean age, a lukewarm church. There's only two problems with that. The first is it's not scriptural, and the second is it's not true. The fact is that the scriptures intend to be saying these things not as representative of one particular church in one age, so the rest of you don't have to pay attention to that. Well, this is for the Ephesian age. We're not in that anymore. So we're in no danger of losing our first love. Uh-uh. If, you, if you're saying that, you already lost your first love. You missed it already. Uh, well, we're in the Smyrna time period here, so let's, let's really get involved in the Smyrna thing here. That's not the point. These churches are representing the manifold needs and problems of the churches in all the ages, and all the churches in all the ages are supposed to hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. You see the relevance to us? In the third place, not only are these things spoken by the Spirit of God and addressed to all the churches to be heeded by people in all the churches, but not to heed the word spoken by the Spirit to all the churches is to lose it. In one particular instance, the Lord said, if you don't straighten up, I'll take your your lampstand away from you. I'll remove it. You won't have the light. You won't receive it and you won't have it to give. Take it out of its place. It's sort of like the barren fruit fig tree. The Lord walks by that thing. He looks at it. It's got leaves. It's got limbs. And there are no figs. And you know, it's interesting. In one passage relaying that story, it wasn't even the time for figs to be ripe. wasn't even supposed to have figs on it that season. And the Lord saw it and cursed it and said, you won't bear figs from now on. See, there are some who keep thinking that God's long-suffering is so infinite that there'll never come a day when he'll put the curse on you. And you'll go home tonight. You'll have a little stirring of conscience. But you'll rush off to some fat food You'll get a little pleasure before you go to bed. You'll sleep it off. Tomorrow you'll wake up 
and your actions will go right back the way they were Saturday that created the little guilt pains you had today. And you'll play this incessant game with God in which you come to God's house and like to have your conscience trodden just a bit so that you could say, Pastor, you really stepped on my toes. And you like it that way as long as you can keep it about the toe level. And you'll go home, and it becomes a little game. You like feeling things, but you don't want to feel them in such a way that it actually makes a difference in your bank account or in your time spent in front of the tube or in the time you spend with your kids or in the way you use your mouth or in the way you pray or anything else. As long as nothing actually ever is exacted of your behavior, you like the process of getting stepped on a bit in preaching, having a few tears maybe, maybe even feeling stern toward God or stern toward the world. But as long as you don't have to do anything, as long as you can keep that right hand attached and keep that right eye in, fine. The problem is there will come a day when the Lord will pass by you looking for fruit and he won't find it. And he'll curse you and there'll be no hope ever again of bearing fruit. And you'll become a monument to God's righteousness. Not to heed the word is to lose it. Let him that has ears to hear, hear. This is not an accidental sevenfold reminder. This is an exhortation of urgency. If you have ears to hear, hear. Hebrews 2, we're told, let us give the more earnest heed to the things we have already heard, lest at any time we drift away from them. Brethren, there are two problems at large among us in this regard, at least. One is, some of you don't believe that. And you think that you're able to retain what you've heard by slovenly response and sloppy and lazy follow-up. You never play a tape. You never open a scripture text. You never go home and meditate on what you've heard. And the word of God in your life is like the seed sown out in the birds of the air. Pluck it out before it ever takes root every week. And the second problem is you've gotten in such a habit of that And your life hasn't fallen apart in your mind yet that you've actually come to believe that that it's not really a problem in your case. I tell you, some of you may be on the verge of having no more to hear. Not to heed it is to lose it. Well, that's something of the relevance of these letters to us. They're sent by the Spirit to the churches. And the urgency of our hearing what he says to the churches is laid hard and heavily and repeatedly sevenfold upon us. But also a factor that helps drive home the significance of Christ's letters to the churches is their comfort for us. Not only their relevance to us, but their comfort for us. And this is seen in a common introduction. To the letters. In each case, there is something of a common introduction. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. To the Ephesian church, he says, I know your works. 
in verse 9, speaking to Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy of them that say they're Jews and they're not. Verse 13, speaking to Pergamum, I know where you dwell. In verse 19, speaking to Thyatira, I know your works. In chapter 3, verse 1, speaking to Sardis, I know your works. In chapter 3, verse 8, speaking to Philadelphia, I know your works. And in verse 15 to Laodicea, I know your works. At the outset of every epistle, there is this statement. I know your works, or I know your situation, or I know your status and your condition. And there's comfort in that for us. And the comfort is derived by contemplating at least three things. Think about this. There's comfort in those words, I know thy works. And you derive the comfort by contemplating three things. First of all, you derive comfort from those words, I know your works, from contemplating the glorious identity of the speaker. I know your works. Who knows our works? None other than the exalted Lord Jesus Christ himself. With no mediator, he's speaking directly to us. And he says, I know your works. It is the Lord God, the Son of God, God's prophet, God's priest, God's king, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, who one day will return and judge the whole universe and in a conflagration renovate it and renew it and bring his people to himself and put death, his last enemy, under his foot, who has a name above every name that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And when Jesus Christ comes again, we'll see glorified that which we see in the scripture by faith now. And that's who's speaking. Notice his constant care and speaking nearness to the church. Here's the Lord in a position in relationship to us in which he speaks to us. The Lord is available to speak to his church. This is not some messenger he sent. This is Christ speaking to his church directly, intimately, from the perspective of one who knows them. He speaks. He cares about his church. And he's so near to her that he can speak to her and she can hear him. He doesn't have to yell. He doesn't have to pick up the phone. He doesn't, this is not through an emissary, long distance. It doesn't take a while for the message to get there. There's nearness here. He's walking in the midst of the churches and speaking to them. My dear brethren, it may be that we're dull of hearing, but Jesus Christ is speaking to this church. It may be that you don't see it, but he is nonetheless speaking to this church. 
him that has ears to hear, hear. Back in Exodus chapter 30, we are taught that the high priest had the responsibility, among all kinds of other things, to trim the lamps, the lampstands, and to keep them maintained so that light would continually be maintained in the temple round the clock. The high priest's job was so to care for the tabernacle that the light never went out. He had to maintain it and trim them and keep the oil going. Every, it was his duty. That was his job. He had to maintain them. Notice our great high priest constantly maintaining his duty, carrying out his ministry in the church, trimming the lampstand, keeping the oil supplied so that the light doesn't go out in the world. That's his duty. Shall he fail? No. How does he do it? He speaks to his church. He trims her wick. He deals with her needs. He points out her problems. This is who is dealing with us and our lampstand. None other than God's high priest who is faithful over all his house. Oh, dear brethren in this church tonight who may be troubled and afraid and confused about all kinds of issues, let me remind you, you are not running the church. It has not been put into your hands to protect her and to maintain her and to guard her. Christ has accepted that responsibility and we're in good hands with Christ. It's unbelief for any of us to shy back from the worship of Christ with a happy heart because we're afraid he's going to let things fall out of place. Did that need to be said in this place tonight? It needs to be said to me. The Lord Jesus has not forgotten His people. He's trimming His lampstand. He's ministering. His job is being done faithfully. He will present her spotless. And her light will not go out. And he sees to it by the means of direct speaking to his people. Notice in the second place, not only the glorious identity of the speaker, but the omniscient perspective of the speaker. Not only I know, but I know. Omniscient perspective. He sees the good in his church. What a wonderful thing that our Lord never overlooks the marks of grace in his people. They're his marks. He doesn't forget to note them. When he's chastening them and rebuking them, he does not forget to commend them where commendation is appropriate. The faintest longings for holiness, the smallest movings of faith, the least stirrings of love, he notices them and commends them. And encourages them. And feeds them. The Lord hasn't lost sight of you, his people. He sees all that's commendable here. He knows all that's good. He knows. Just as the psalmist understood in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too high for me. I cannot attain it. 
You know my down sitting and my uprising. Where can I go from your presence, O Lord? You know me altogether. Even while the words are forming on the back of my tongue, you know them. That's too high for me. Christ says to you, I know. You're hurting? Are you scared? Is your faith a little glimmer or a glow in the fireplace about to go out? No, not much warmth left. Not much light left. He knows. You're alone in your workplace. Nobody understands in your home. Your spouse not cooperating. Your kids not coming along the way you hoped. You got problems in your finances. You got problems in your heart. He knows. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. He knows. And let me add this, brethren. When you get wounded and hurt, it is not a godly thing to so hold on to the hurt that you refuse to let the Lord comfort you and remove it. Eventually, a saint who continues to hurt over the same past event is a saint who is becoming ungodly in his sainthood. The Lord knows. Is not he enough to comfort you in your hurt? Why have you not turned to him? Why do you keep trying to satiate your need with people? When are you going to find that he really is all he says he is in the closet without anybody's help? When is the book going to be enough for you? A verse of scripture enough to make it through the day, not barely, but triumphantly. Now, I don't say this to put you down, but it is a mild rebuke and an exhortation. Brethren, if there's a problem in our seeing the sufficiency of Christ, the problem lies not in his sufficiency, but in our seeing. Where, oh ye of little faith. But not only does he see the good, he sees the bad. He's in the midst of the church. His eyes are a flame of fire. He has the seven spirits who go throughout the earth. And he sees the bad. You see, his love is not blind. He loves us. But he sees our faults. And what does he do when he sees our faults? He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He knows. And what does he do by his knowledge? He acts. And that brings us to the third contemplation. To give us comfort. Not only to contemplate the glorious identity of the speaker and the omniscient perspective of the speaker, but also the faithful labors of the speaker. When he sees, he reveals. For every perception that our Lord has, he provides a prescription. He gives precisely to his people what they need to know for their comfort, for their correction, for their help. In Isaiah chapter 51 verse 12, we're told, I... Even I am he that comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man that shall die? And the son of man that shall be made as grass.
and have forgotten the Lord your maker that stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the fury of the oppressor. Brethren, the Lord will tell us what we need to know. Because he loves us and he rebukes and chastens those whom he loves. He is faithful in his labors as our priest, as our king, and as our prophet. He never perceives when he doesn't prescribe. Man's opinions are no safe guide in our duty, nor are they a safe comfort in our distress. Let me hear the voice of Christ, even if it be a voice of chastening and rebuking. Let me hear his voice. Let me know God's word and I'm settled. Lord, let me know the truth and I'm set. I don't care what men say. I don't care what men think. I don't care what men feel if I hear Christ's voice. The whole world can shout if I hear Christ's still small voice. I'm satisfied. Dear brethren, it's not the issue as to what people will think. The issue is what has God said. And if God has said it, that's all ultimately that will matter in the end. Do you get that? We are bound to obey not anything other than what Jesus Christ says. And we are bound to obey all of that. Let us hear the voice of Christ and it sufficeth us. Where he comforts with his almighty omniscient love for his people. By the appropriate words fitly spoken in due season. Well, a couple of implications and then we shall quit. Notice that Christ comforts with words. Did you notice that? It's right on the front of this. When the Lord wants to comfort his people, what does he do? He talks to them. He says things. Words. I know the theory that believes that words are useless and the best thing to do is not ever talk and just act. The problem is that the highest action in the Bible is speech. When God wanted to save the world, he decided to use the mechanism of talk. Men opening their mouths and preaching the gospel. We have to guard our words. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. And there are many problems in this church because of words that are idly spoken by undisciplined lips and proud and selfish lips. And the Lord will deal with that. But the Lord comforts with words. So learn his words. Love his words. Hear his words above all the din of the world's clamor and chaos and calamity. Above all the roar of your own little heart. Are you afraid? The Lord says, Whom shall I fear? Why should I fear what man should do to me? The Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. The scriptures provide answers for your fears. You have doubts? The Lord says, you believe in God. Believe also in me. I know what's going on. I'm taking care of things. I'm going to go where you can't even see me and prepare a place that you can't even see for you. 
You're going to spend your sojourn here worrying about that because you can't see it? Believe me. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Folks, settle in. Sleep well tonight. The Lord gives to His beloved even in their sleep. God who watches over Israel as we sang in the hymn in Sunday school, neither slumbers nor sleeps. He said words. Believe them and rest. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. But my dear friend, the first time you let your mind wander to some of us, you're not your peace is going to wander right along with it. First time you get your eyes on men, your peace is going to run away. The first time you either judge other people and say, well, Lord, they're just as bad as I am, you'll know peace. The first time you put them on a pedestal and say, I trust in that man, God will take your peace away. You fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be doing any of us a disservice. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. And you know what will happen? When we start gazing upon Him and gathering around Him and drawing near to Him, we'll notice a real closeness to each other because we'll all be at the same place. We'll all be looking at the same thing. And we'll see our own selves reflected in His image. Where is the holy discipline of a people who on their own focus on Christ and won't let anything deter them? Let me see Christ. Let me hear Christ. It's hard work. Isn't it hard work? And it definitely, you get it settled on Monday and you've got to do it again on Tuesday. Huh? Everything in the world is trying to keep you from thinking of the Lord Jesus. There's a multitude of sins in this church right now coming from all kinds of directions as the devil has got us on every, he's yanking us here and he's yanking us there and he's got us here and he's working there. Some of us it's money. Some of us it's other people in the church. Some of us it's our own sin. Some of us it's our house. Some of us it's something in the past. Some of us it's something in the future. Some of us it's all that. And the devil just pulling strings. He never sleeps or slumbers either, brethren. But I'll tell you what. My Savior has bruised his head and has him bound and is stealing his captives daily and will take care of me. Are you confused? Have some questions you can't answer? Ask of God who gives liberally wisdom. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Christ comforts us with words. In the book. Get to know the book. In the second and last place. The only sure remedy. For every contingency of life. For the church of Jesus Christ. Is the earnest and continual contemplation. Of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. The only sure remedy. For every contingency of life for the church is the earnest and continual contemplation of the glory and the grace of Christ. The state of the church depends on her view of Christ. She has to have a correct doctrine about him. And she has to experience disciplined meditation upon him. Dear brethren, 
If we get all the five points straight, if we get our worship in order in terms of the externals, if we straighten up the ordinances, if we get the hymns correct, if we read the right verses, if we get our church government straight, get our discipline in order, do all the things that a good Reformed church will do, and get our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all for naught. There's not a person in this room who is a believer who would ever explain anything about himself that's good apart from the terms Jesus. It's all of Christ. If you love anybody, you love Jesus. If you need anybody, you need Jesus. If you desire anybody, you need to desire Jesus. You're sick of the world. You've tried men. They don't satisfy. You've tried the world's pleasures. It doesn't take care of your need. You've worried. You've fretted. You're still in a pickle. You haven't found the solution yourself. Where in your life have you ever been where there was real peace and real satisfaction and real comfort and real joy that lasted? You name me any place but Jesus. And I'll fold my Bible up and go home if you can prove it. We're a people who need Jesus. We're a people who need to know Jesus. And need to contemplate him in his glory and his grace. And if we will exercise the holy discipline to do it continually. We'll grow up in our faith. We'll strengthen our way. And our light will not go out, but will shine brighter and brighter till the perfect day. May God help it to be so in every soul in this place and in this church until the Lord comes again. Join me for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the kind and thoughtful words which you have put in this book for us. Though you gave them two millennia ago, and though you put them in the pen of an aged apostle on an island alone, you somehow in your goodness brought them all the way across the ocean and across the years to us. And we thank you for their perfectness and their sweetness and their, and their appropriateness and their righteousness. Now we ask you, O oh God, to help us receive them and retain them for our eternal good for the advancement of your kingdom visible in the earth, the church for whom your son died. O oh Lord, help this people to fix its gaze upon you and keep it there till we see you perfectly in glory. Have mercy on us. You know us. You know our down sitting and our uprising. And we're glad. So search us, Lord. Try us. Know our thoughts. 
and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We ask it all in the name of our good and chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.